Thank you, Mary. I have held this society in my heart for a long time, and it's such a joy and privilege to be here today. Albert Einstein wrote, and this is a paraphrase, or an adaptation, I guess I should say, the human being is part of the whole called by us the universe, a part limited in time and space. We experience ourselves and our thoughts and feelings as something separate from the rest, a kind of optical delusion. This delusion is a kind of prison. Our task must be to free ourselves from this prison by widening our circle of compassion to embrace all living creatures and the whole of nature in all its beauty. Nobody is able to achieve this completely, but the striving for such achievement is in itself a part of a liberation and a foundation for inner security. One of my earliest memories took place pretty near here. When I was probably, probably around four or five years old, really quite a young child, I saw the photographs of the Holocaust, of the prison camps, published in Life magazine. I was so young at the time, I didn't really understand what it was about, and I just knew that when I looked at those horrific pictures, I felt unutterable grief. How could this happen? What had happened? How could anyone treat other people like this? My little four or five-year-old mind was filled with, with questions and bewilderment, I couldn't make sense of it. But I had this beginning of a thought. I remember so clearly that somehow, maybe I could help make it better. Such was the beginning of my moral and ethical awareness, I suppose. Or it might have happened even earlier. My family was one of the original families to live in Greenbelt, Maryland, the planned community for white-collar workers and their families near, the, near Washington. In the center of town were the businesses, the grocery stores and the doctor's offices, the schools, the playgrounds, the parks, and in a kind of a semicircle around with like spokes radiating radiating out from a wheel were these rows of houses, row houses, um, and beyond that were the garages, so that along these courts and the sidewalks between the houses were safe places for children to play, and we could walk anywhere in town, even when we were very little, in safety from traffic. So that's the town I grew up in, and 
I think there were about 30 kids on my court. There were a lot of us. But there was one who was very special to me. His name was Mikey, and he'd lived directly across the street, across the court from our house. We were born a week apart, and from the time we met in our cribs, we were inseparable. My mother told me that we lived in each other's cribs and playpens, and even when we were big enough to get out of our playpens by ourselves, we would walk from the playpen in my yard over to the playpen in his yard and both climb in and be happy playing there. We were constant companions, and it was my first experience of total and unconditional love. This was my best friends. We were going to be best friends forever. I, I was aware that Mikey was different. I could not understand why the other kids would tease him and play tricks on him because he was so innocent and sweet and, and he was so dear to me. So I longed to and I tried to protect him. And I would yell, go away, leave us alone, at the big kids who would come by and, and tease us and play tricks. And I would get so furious. Mikey never, never really understood, but I did, and it made me mad. Right before my sixth birthday, I found that my family was going to move away. We were moving to Chicago. How far away is that? When will I see Mikey? Will I be able to see him? And the disappointing answer was no. I couldn't stand the fact that I was leaving Mikey. I didn't want to go. Who was going to take care of Mikey? Who would be my friend? I learned later that Mikey had Down's syndrome. And I understood then, when I was older, what was going on with the other kids. The inability to welcome, accept difference. I remember the day we left, kneeling on the back seat of our old Chevrolet, and Mikey and a bunch of the other kids were standing at the top of the court as we drove away, waving goodbye. And I remember kneeling in the back seat and looking out the back window, waving goodbye to Mikey, wondering if I'd ever see him again. And I was sobbing. My memory is that I cried all the way to Chicago. And it took three days, so I probably drove my parents and siblings crazy. But that was a pattern that was beginning in my life that often won me disfavor with the other kids because I just couldn't stand to see anybody being teased or bullied. And I would fight back and tell them what they could do. <laughs> it, it might have helped that I was the tallest kid in the class. <laughs> but I often felt alone. I couldn't understand how people could get pleasure from teasing and making fun of and bullying others. I just never got it. And they didn't get me. I found other friends who understood, though. 
And I wonder how many of you felt that way when you were children, if you had those same inklings of that ethical, that moral compass beginning to form that made you abhor unfairness and unkindness. I wonder if you would be willing to take a couple of minutes and to think back to that time. You might want to close your eyes for just a moment and think back to the, your early days, to think of a time when you first experienced your growing moral intuition. What were you noticing around you? How were you feeling? What questions were you asking? What, what were you longing for? I wonder how many of you remember a budding feeling of compassion. Maybe you didn't know what to call it back then. But that feeling that you noticed when others were hurting and that you wanted to do something about it. I wonder how many of you felt alone. I often think that the people who are drawn to ethical societies, when I used to do membership interviews and really talk with people deeply about what had drawn, drawn them to this unusual faith, <laughs> and a lot of them said they just felt that they didn't belong, that the world that they envisioned was so different from the world they lived in. And I think this is a place where people gather who have this sense of compassion and, and maybe moral outrage <laughs> against things that we see around us in the world. In this time, at the beginning of the 21st century, compassion is needed more than ever. Although we are connected in the global village through the internet and through all kinds of um, technologies, as never before, our human culture seems very polarized. There are so many forces around us to, trying to pull us apart. I still worry, as I did as a child hiding under my desk, that there are still thousands of nuclear warheads armed and capable of destroying all human life and most other species. We need the growth of compassion across our world among all peoples for all humankind to make war ever more obsolete. We need compassion for Earth, for other species, and humanity in order to shift from the business as usual of the multinational corporations and our growth economy ever wanting to grow 
that uses our precious environment, our earth, our only home, as both a supply, supply closet and a sewer. We need more compassionate models for employment where workers are able to find jobs and earn enough to live a decent life, where every person can house, feed, and clothe their family and have access to health care. Tens of millions of people around the globe are longing for such a cultural shift to a more healthy, sustainable, compassionate, and appreciative life. What eco-philosopher Joanna Macy calls the great turning. <clears throat> she writes, the great turning is a name for the essential adventure of our time, the shift from the industrial growth society to a life-sustaining civilization. The ecological and social crises we face are inflamed by an economic system dependent on accelerating growth. This self-destructing political economy sets its goals and measures its performances in terms of ever-increasing corporate profit, in other words, by how fast materials can be extracted from the earth and turned into consumer products, weapons, and waste. A revolution is underway because people are realizing that our needs can be met without destroying our world. We have the technical knowledge, the communication tools, and material resources to grow enough food, to ensure clean air and water, and to meet rational energy needs. We need only our ingenuity and our will to make it happen. Future generations, if there is a livable world for them, will look back at this time, we hope, as an epochal transition we are making toward a life-sustaining society. <clears throat> and they may well call this the time of the great turning. It is happening now. It could be happening now. Whether or not it is recognized by corporate-controlled media, the great turning is a reality for many of us, although we cannot know yet if it will take hold in time. <clears throat> Excuse me. For humans and other complex life forms to survive, we can know that it is underway and it is gaining momentum through the actions of countless individuals and groups around the world. To see this as the larger context of our lives clears our vision and summons our courage. And I think so many of us feel, what can I do? What can we do? We're so small and the forces arrayed against this are so strong. But I've taken much hope lately <laughs> from the Occupy Wall Street and Washington and even Asheville, little Asheville. Had people camping out on our Pack Park Square. <laughs> Recently, I was privileged to spend a weekend with Joanna Macy in a workshop designed to prepare us for the work to make the great turning ever more possible. Much of the work the, that weekend included practices of compassion for Earth, other species, for each other, 
and for ourselves. A huge part of the great turning will necessarily be a change in the way that we see each other. Not us here, but others outside of this room. And you know who you might put in that place. Maybe the person that you would have a hard time t t talking with. Oh, thank you so much. Let's see if this helps. A huge part of this great turning will necessarily be the, a change in the way we see each other, just as it is articulated in the Charter for Compassion with which we began our platform meeting. And you have a copy of the whole charter with you, and I hope that you'll look at that, and that you'll look on the back as well and notice that there are commitments you can make. And you can make um, and I would su suggest just choosing one at a time because they're the kinds of commitments that might take you a month or a year or a lifetime. Um, but I'm going to be talking a little bit about some things that you can do to make that possible. And you can actually go on the website that's listed at the bottom and you can make, you can affirm the charter and say, yes, I'm going to affirm this charter and I'm going to try to do my best to behave in accordance with it. The Charter for Compassion was the result of a TED Prize given every year to a brilliant thinker with a great idea that it is hoped will have a global effect. For those of you, you all know what the TED Foundation is? Some of you not know? <laughs> Um, the TED Foundation's goal is to foster the spread of great ideas. It aims to provide a platform th for the world's smartest thinkers, the greatest visionaries, and the most inspiring teachers, so that millions of people can gain a better understanding of the biggest issues faced by the world and a desire to help create a better future. Core to this goal is a belief that there is no greater force for changing the world than a powerful idea such as the Charter for Compassion. So in, 19, in 2008, Karen Armstrong, the scholar of, and pretty well-known scholar of world religions, who's written about 20 books, I think, um, researching and analyzing um, religions and spiritual um, spiritual foci from all around the world. She was given this prize so that she could do something she wanted to do, was to bring together all people of all faiths, all spiritualities, in their common, the one thing that we have in common is that the base of all of, all of these, all of these cultures, all of these religions, is this longing for compassion. And she focused in her book on the golden rule. And so we're gonna talk a little bit about that. But what she proposed to do with the money that she um, was given for her prize was to invite all, um, all the religions, 
and um, spiritualities, I guess is the word I want to use, um, and their leaders to come together to develop a statement that would represent humankind's longing for another way of relating to each other, that would come out of the core, the ethical core of all of these faiths. In February 2009, the words of thousands of people around the world, this was done on the web and on the internet, and thousands of people responded and gave their ideas of what should be in this charter. And then it was given to a, the council, it's called the Council of Conscience. And it was a group of people like the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu and the head reform rabbi of Amsterdam. And um, I, can't, I can't name them all, but um, they met together to talk about what should be in this charter. And they finally came up with a version. This was a huge committee. And you know what it's like to write <laughs> something with a huge committee. But they finally found something that they could all agree with, and you have it in your hands. On November 12, 2009, in 60 locations around the world, it was enshrined, it was announced, it was enshrined in temples, mosques, churches, and synagogues, as well as placed in more secular places, for instance, the Sydney Opera House in Sydney, Australia, and the Karachi Press Club. Found that on their website. <laughs> and you can go to their website and find out all about this. Karen Armstrong says, I say that religion isn't about believing things. It's ethical alchemy. It's about behaving in a way that changes you, that gives you the intimation of holiness and sacredness. She hopes that the Charter for Compassion will inspire such ethical alchemy in people, in cities, in countries, in organizations, and businesses around the world, and that it will, it will motivate us to turn around. Almost 79,000 people have affirmed the Charter. Six cities have been granted compassionate city status, Appleton, Wisconsin, Basalt, Colorado, Lake County, California, London, Ontario, Millbrae, California, Seattle, Washington. And now there are 62 candidate cities waiting to be, to fulfill all their requirements. And among them is Washington, DC. And I, I just realized I, I was having some enemy images about that building in the center of Washington <laughs> that doesn't seem very compassionate these days. But other, other cities in that list of candidates are Addis Ababa, Ethiopia, Amman, Jordan, Amsterdam, Anchorage, Alaska, Arlington, Virginia, Assisi, Italy, Barcelona, Cairo, Canberra, Australia, Cape Town, South Africa, all around the world. Cities are saying, yes, we want to be more compassionate. We want to change the way we're living with each other and communing with each other. We want to build a compassionate culture in our city. So you can also, and Mary and I were talking about this the other day, 
I think we could have that, that organizations can also sign on. So the Ethical Society, the Washington Ethical Society could be a compassionate um, organization. And I'm going to talk to um, the Asheville Ethical Society about this too. I think we should make it movement-wide. So I want to talk to you a little bit about this book because I think this could be a way that you could, um, this, you could talk about this idea. It's called 12 Steps to a Compassionate Life by Karen Armstrong and it's really her, it's a wonderful work of scholarship looking into the history of the golden rule and that the ethical, um, that ethical theme of compassion that exists in all religions. And also she looks at some of the brain research that, and neurochemical research that shows what there is already in us that tends both away from compassion, but in our higher and our um, prefrontal, prefrontal cortex toward the compassion and, and the conquering of some of our more um, base, some of our baser instincts. So she has 12 steps. This is a 12-step program for compassion. <laughs> Um, in, at the beginning of the book, she, she talks about the first golden rule, which was, um, which was explained by Confucius, who lived 2,500 years ago. He, he, when he was asked um, which of his teachings his disciples could practice each day and every day, he replied, perhaps the saying about Shu, and I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that correctly. Maybe there's a Chinese scholar here. Um, one of its translation is consideration. And it's often translated as never do to others what, would you, what you would not like them to do to you. Armstrong says a better translation of shu is likening to oneself. People should not put themselves in a special privileged category but relate their own experience to that of others all day and every day. I only wish she had included what Felix Adler called our supreme ethical rule. I wish I'd known this was going on back then because I would have sent it in. <laughs> so act as to elicit the best in others and thereby in yourself. And I know you all study that here. I believe it expands the golden rule beyond its limits to consider some best, some unique excellence that resides in the center of each person and that is yet to be discovered. I've always thought that each person has a treasure inside of them that is unique. I used to, I used to say this to my students when I taught high school. There has never been before, and will never be again, a person quite like you, and you are a treasure. You have something inside of you that no one else has, will ever have, has ever had. And so you need to discover what that treasure is and let it come out into the world. And I find if I look at people that way, it helps me negotiate difficulties that seem to arise. 
Well, so I look to people to think about how in this situation, in this moment, can I act in a way that will help us both flower to our full potential in this moment. So Armstrong suggests 12 things that each of us can do to live more compassionately in the world. And I will, I'm just going to kind of go over these quickly. I'm, I'm actually don't know how much time I've got left. <laughs> but um, she says the first thing is to learn all you can about compassion. And she helps you in the, in the first step of the book because she's a great scholar and she shares from philosophy, religious writings, and texts which she reads in their original languages, um, myths, um, literature, just all kinds of um, human writings that share, that talk about human compassion and what happens to us when we forget that. The second step is to look at your own world, to look around you. What is the state of the world today? What are the current problems that call for more compassion? And the third step is finding compassion for yourself. Now, we're not talking about self-preoccupation here or conceitedness or self-centeredness. It is a truth widely recognized in today's culture that it is hard to love others if we cannot love ourselves. If we are constantly criticizing and judging ourselves, it is very difficult not to judge and criticize others. When we have compassion for ourselves, we understand our own lives and what has brought us here. And we can feel, feel that gentle acceptance of who and what we are and the, and the longing, without forgetting the longing to be better to be more of what we'd want to be. The fourth step is empathy, the ability to relate to others from the heart, to recognize and understand them at their, and their suffering and their longings to really hear and see them. The fifth step is mindfulness. Armstrong speaks of mindfulness as a form of meditation that we perform as we go about our daily lives. And it is designed to give us more control over our minds so that we can reverse ingrained tendencies and cultivate new ones, compassionate ones. The sixth step is to take action. And the story she tells is one from her own life where, where she met, um, when she was in the convent, she met with an older prioress who was dying. And she did something so simple for her. And it eased the prioress in her last moments. And she didn't think about it until one of, one of her fellows mentioned it to her. And she said that she had she began to think about how every day each of us has opportunities to do some small thing that will make a huge difference in someone's life. That, and we hardly notice. Reminds me of William Wordsworth's words, the best portion of a good man's life, his little nameless unremembered acts of kindness and of love. 
The seventh step is to realize how little we know about others' lives, especially those in other lands, of other beliefs, of other political persuasions, of other cultures. This step is to recognize that we do not know everything, we cannot know everything, but it is also about stretching our mind beyond what we know to really try to learn more and to learn even those things that might seem strange or repugnant to us, to expand our experience and our knowledge. Number eight is, she, um, is to ask ourselves the question, how should we speak to one another? The discourse in our world today is often competitive, derisive, even insulting, full of put-downs and even cruelty. It certainly is in our political discourse. How might we talk to each other if we treated everyone with respect? What would such a dialogue sound like? How might we be both honest and kind? And I know that in your relationship building courses, you, you have a handle on, on that. Number nine is having a concern for everyone. It is easy for us to have a concern for our own families and closest friends, but the Charter for Compassion calls upon us to widen our circle. We can no longer thrive at the expense of others. A practically expressed respect, Armstrong writes, for the other is probably indispensable for a peaceful global society. Step 10 is knowledge. The effort of getting to know those who are different from us demands equanimity and patience, as well as the ability to stretch beyond ourselves, our own culture, our biases and preconceptions. The 11th is recognition. And what came to me when I read this was, you know, the movie um, Avatar, where she says, I see you. They say, I see you. That is the greeting. I see you, who you really are. I hear what you are longing for. And that is, she's saying, that's the way we need to greet each other, to really see each other. The final one is the hardest for me. It's love your enemies. I imagine it's hardest for all of us. We all know that we're supposed to love our enemies. Certainly those of us who were brought up in the Christian church know that that was the basic teaching, to love your enemies as yourself. Armstrong quotes Martin Luther King in his chapter, only goodness can drive out evil and only love can drive out hate and that can form a motivation for us certainly but I still find myself having a hard time. How can I show compassion to someone who harms others? I've been studying nonviolent communication for the last five years, and I, I must say that as I look at that practice, that it helps me with about half of these. It's part of the underlying practice 
of nonviolent communication to act in such a way. And it's helped me find, learn how to give myself empathy and to accept and love myself, to love others, to give compassion. I'd like to end with a poem that I have spent hours and hours for many years reading so I could try, and I've, I've meditated on it and thought about it. And to me, it expresses what I'm growing to understand compa this compassion really means. And it's a poem by Thich Nhat Hanh called Call Me By My True Names. And I'd like to share, share part of it with you because I, I don't want to, it's a long poem and I, I think we need to be drawing this to a close. <clears throat> Call me by my true names. Look deeply. I arrive in every second to be a bud on the spring branch, to be a tiny bird with wings still fragile, learning to sing in my new desk, to be a caterpillar in the heart of a flower, to be a jewel hiding in the stone. I still arrive in order to laugh and cry, in order to fear and to hope. The rhythm of my heart is the birth and death of all that are alive. I am the mayfly metamorphosing on the surface of the river, and I am the bird, which when spring comes arrives in time to eat the mayfly. I am the frog swimming happily in the clear pond, and I am also the grass snake, who approaching in silence feeds itself on the frog. I am the child in Uganda, all skin and bones, my legs as thin as bamboo sticks. And I am the arms merchant selling deadly weapons to Uganda. I am the 12-year-old girl, refugee, on a small boat who throws herself into the ocean after being raped by a sea pirate. And I am the pirate, my heart not yet capable of seeing and loving. My joy is like spring so warm it makes flowers bloom in all walks of life. My pain is like a river of tears so full it fills the four oceans. Please call me by my true name so I can hear all my cries and laughs at once, so I can see that my joy and pain are one. Please call me by my true name so I can wake up and so the door of my heart can be left open. The door of compassion. Thich Nhat Hanh.